Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to welcome everybody. Uh, and we gather today to consider the nominations of two ambassadorships and two, two senior positions at the State Department. Uh, Mrs. Callista L. Gingrich is the President's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See. Mr. Nathan Alexander Sales is the President's nominee to be Coordinator for Counterterrorism with rank and status of Ambassador at Large. Mr. George Edward Glass is the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Portugal. And Mr. Carl C. Risch is the President's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. I want to welcome the nominees, uh, their families, uh, to this committee and congratulate them on their selection uh, by the President. And thank you for your willingness to serve. I also want to note that we have Congressman Rooney uh, here supporting uh, Mrs. Gingrich. Um, Congressman Rooney was uh, Congressman from Florida and also the Ambassador to the Holy See during uh, President Bush's term. Uh, this committee is also honored to welcome our distinguished colleagues who will introduce two of our witnesses, the senior senator from Oregon, Senator Ron Wyden, and an esteemed member of this committee, uh, Senator Portman from Ohio. Thank you both for being here today, and with that I will recognize Senator Wyden to introduce uh, Mr. Glass. Mr. Chairman, thank you for uh, your courtesy. As Senator Portman knows, we are right in the middle of debating tax reform. I know a topic uh, of great interest to many uh, senators here, and I'm trying to help out uh, Chairman Hatch. So I will make uh, this a filibuster-free um, opportunity, uh, Mr. Chairman, and it is a great privilege to be able to introduce a longtime friend, George Edward Glass. Mr. Glass has been nominated to serve as our next ambassador to Portland. And as we begin this discussion, I'm glad that the president has begun submitting more nominees to the Senate for consideration because we all understand that having a Senate-confirmed ambassador makes a world of differences when challenges emerge, as this committee knows better than just about anybody. Knowing Mr. Glass as I do, I am confident that as all of you get to know him better, you are going to report him favorably to the Senate floor. As he is going to tell you, George Glass is an Oregonian through and through. He was born in Eugene. He attended college there, graduating from the University of Oregon. Like me, he is a duck, and he has continued to be involved uh, with the university, with uh, the community, as he has been recognized as a pillar of Portland's financial, real estate, and tech communities. He's been involved in a number of projects to help our community. I'm particularly pleased that he has had a long interest in the Oregon Health and Science University. They play a lifeline in terms of reaching out to our community and to those who uh, have really found it hard to access health care. He's been a trustee for the Oregon Health and Science University, a former president of the University of Oregon Alumni Association, and also a member of the Catholic Business Leaders Association. I just feel very strongly that as you look uh, to Portugal and to that part of the world, we are going to need people who've demonstrated a track record of stepping up, being involved in their community, someone with expertise in a variety of areas, not just uh, his chosen profession of finance, 
but healthcare with his background at the Oregon uh, Health Sciences Center. And I believe that as you get to know him and uh, confirm him after you've had a chance to hear from him, you will come to the conclusion I have, which is George Glass has values shared by Americans, by those in the country he seeks to serve, Portugal. And I very much appreciate uh, my colleagues going out of order to extend this courtesy uh, to me. And my guess is Chairman Hatch probably is grateful to you all as well as we try to keep matters proceeding in the Finance Committee. So thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And I very much look forward to members of the committee getting to know George Glass as I have. I think you'll come to the same judgment I have. He will uh, serve and reflect great credit on the United States in this position. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Senator Wyden, for that great introduction and your strong support for the nominee. And, and as long as you're taking a look at my corporate tax reform, I really do encourage you to get, get out of here and get back to task at hand. Uh, Senator Portman. Thank you, Chairman Johnson. And uh, I'll be joining my colleague in a minute back down on the tax reform front. But I wanted to be here to welcome this uh, distinguished group of nominees. Uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. And uh, to Mr. Risch and uh, Mr. Glass, um, Mr. Glass, you've just gotten a, a, a nice uh, accolade from uh, someone who will help you uh, not just in this committee but in the vote on the floor. Um, to Calista Gingrich, again, thank you for serving. You could have no better person behind you than former ambassador to the Holy See, Francis Rooney, um, and that means a lot to all of us. Um, and we're looking forward to supporting you. Finally, Nathan Sales, Mr. Chairman, he's from Ohio. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't have guessed. Did I tell you that he's from Ohio? Uh, but we're very proud of him. He uh, is before this committee to be the next coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department. So, obviously, an incredibly vital national security position that needs to be filled as quickly as possible. And by the way, in these national security positions, we need to have honorable, capable individuals who understand the importance of that mission, protecting the homeland, but also working with our allies to combat the threat of global terrorism. And uh, so we're, we're pleased to have you here. Um, did I mention he was from Ohio? Yeah, okay. Uh, never heard to mention again. Okay. Canton, Ohio, to be specific, also attended Ohio's Miami University. Um, he then, uh, for some reason, headed south and went to Duke Law School. Uh, following law school, he did clerk for the Honorable David B. Centel of the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, um, a very prestigious position, and he's no stranger to public service. He uh, served in the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice and then as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security during the George W. Bush administration, where I also served. There he focused on intelligence, uh, information sharing, terrorist travel. Uh, at DHS, he drafted uh, critical legislation to improve the security of our visa waiver program, something that uh, the chairman and I have had uh, deep interest in and, and his other role as chairman of the Government Affairs Homeland Security Committee. In the past few years, uh, Nathan returned to the private sector uh, and academia. He's been counsel at Kirkland and Ellis here in Washington, but also an associate professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law. Uh, by the way, he teaches and writes in the fields of national security law and counterterrorism law, among other areas. So he's superbly qualified for this position. So, Mr. Chairman, uh, I look forward to supporting Nathan Sales as our next coordinator for counterterrorism, not only because of his ties to the Buckeye State, which are important, but much more importantly because of his relevant experience, uh, because of his strong record, and because of his lifelong commitment to our Constitution, our laws, and the security of our country. 
Um, I hope my colleagues on both sides of the aisle will join me in this effort to quickly fill this critically important national security role with an experienced and capable public servant. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman, for that great introduction. And, and again, by all means, go back to uh, Finance Committee and start working on that Your corporate Ron Johnson corporate tax proposal. Um, again, thank you for that. Uh, now, as great as it is to have nominees from Oregon and Ohio, uh, I certainly appreciate the fact that I have uh, the privilege of introducing our nominee from the state of Wisconsin. And although I'm chairing this hearing, in my capacity as a senior senator from Wisconsin, I also have the honor of introducing my fellow Wisconsinite, uh, Mrs. Calista Gingrich, our nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See. Calista was born and raised in Whitehall, Wisconsin, a particularly beautiful area of the state, although as I've driven through it, it's an area that we drop cell coverage frequently. It's hard to do radio interviews as you're driving through that, that region. Uh, she graduated from Whitehall Memorial High School as a valedictorian and served as the organist at St. John's Catholic Church. Calista attended Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, where she was a Regent Scholar and Honors Graduate. Almost three decades ago, Calista came to Washington to intern for her hometown Congressman, Steve Gunderson. She became a member of Congressman Gunderson's personal staff and later served as the Chief Clerk of the House Committee on Agriculture. After 18 years of service, Calista left Capitol Hill to found Gingrich Productions, a multimedia production consulting company. She has been the president and CEO of Gingrich Productions for the last decade, producing documentary films, writing books, and advising clients. Calista also works to support many charitable causes through her role as the president of the Gingrich Foundation. Calista is a lifelong Catholic and has been active in her faith community for many years. She has sung for 21 years in the choir of the Belisica, I'm mispronouncing that, of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception here in Washington. As part of her work, with Gingrich Productions, Calista collaborated with church leaders to produce and host Nine Days to Change the World, a documentary about Pope John Paul II's historic 1979 pilgrimage to Poland. She also produced a documentary about Pope John Paul II's canonization. Calista's interest in John Paul II is fitting, given her nomination. President Reagan's friendship with Pope John Paul II led to reestablish former relationships, relations with the Holy See in 1984, and together they helped orchestrate the fall of the Soviet Union. Since then, popes and American presidents have collaborated on a wide range of issues, including promoting human rights and respect for human dignity, interreligious understanding, and economic progress in the developing world. Calissa's understanding of the Catholic Church, her considerable experience in government and business, and her talents as a communicator make her an ideal choice to represent U.S. interests at the Holy See. I support her nomination and urge my colleagues to support her as well. So thank you, Mrs. Gingrich, for your willingness to serve. I'm also delighted to introduce Mr. Carl C. Risch of Pennsylvania, the President's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. Mr. Risch is a highly regarded Pennsylvania attorney and current Acting Chief of Staff in the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services. He was previously the Field Office Director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services at the American Embassy in Seoul, South Korea. A senior Im immigration official abroad in Washington, D.C. for over a decade and a former counselor, foreign service officer with the Department of State, Mr. Risch is an expert on the responsibilities and challenges of managing consular affairs worldwide. With that, I would like to recognize the distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Murphy. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. We have uh, actually a, a good full house of members here, so uh, I'm going to defer my 
uh, opening remarks. Thank all of you for your service. Uh, Mr. Uh, Sales and I had a chance to uh, sit down and have a very productive conversation yesterday. Uh, I'm very uh, glad for your testimony and for us to engage in a dialogue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy, uh, the order of our nominees' uh, opening remarks will be Mrs. Gingrich, then Mr. Sales, Mr. Glass, then Mr. Risch. Mrs. Gingrich. Chairman Johnson, <clears throat> Ranking Member Murphy, and distinguished members of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, I am honored <clears throat> to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. I am thankful to President Trump for the confidence and trust he has placed in me to be his representative at this important embassy. In addition, I want to express my gratitude to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson for supporting my nomination. It is a special honor to be introduced by Chairman Johnson from my home state of Wisconsin. Thank you. I am also grateful to appear before this committee today with the full support of my husband, Newt. As veterans of Capitol Hill, we both have great respect for your role in assessing and confirming those who represent the American people abroad. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the members and staff of this committee. Like the United States, the Holy See is active on a global scale. It is engaged on every continent to advance religious freedom and human rights, to fight terrorism and violence, to combat human trafficking, to prevent the spread of diseases like Ebola and HIV-AIDS, and to seek peaceful solutions to crises around the world. Those who serve in the State Department are known the world over for their patriotism and dedication. The professional staff at the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See exemplifies these traits. They work tirelessly to leverage the Vatican's global reach and to advance our strong bilateral relationship. Chargé d'affaires Louis Bono and the embassy team did an extraordinary job preparing for and hosting the president on his visit to the Vatican in May. During that visit, President Trump and Pope Francis highlighted shared concerns, including the protection of Christian communities in the Middle East. Pope Francis has powerfully called on religious leaders and people of all faiths to unequivocally reject terrorism and violence in the name of religion. The Vatican and its organizations play an active role to troubled areas around the globe, from Venezuela to South Sudan to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, countries where the Holy See's support for peaceful solutions and democratic institutions directly benefits the interests of the United States. The Catholic Church is a unique global network overseeing the world's second-largest international aid organization, operating 25% of the world's healthcare facilities, and ministering to millions in every corner of the world. As global leaders, the United States and the Vatican must continue to work closely to advance our shared values of human dignity and freedom. This can only happen if we maintain and build upon a strong foundation of trust and mutual communication. If confirmed, I will continue this vital dialogue 
which has been so important for the people of the United States and the world. I understand how the United States and the Holy See can act as a worldwide force for good when we work together. Several years ago, I had the honor of producing a documentary film entitled Nine Days That Changed the World. It chronicles Pope John Paul II's historic pilgrimage to Poland in 1979, an event that inspired the Polish people to renew their hearts, reclaim their courage, and free themselves from the shackles of communism. Producing this film required substantial work with key church leaders and other experts in the United States, Poland, and the Vatican. This film has been well received by the Catholic Church and is used in religious education programs throughout the United States. Most importantly, this film is a powerful example of the invaluable role the Vatican plays in international affairs. Recently, I produced another documentary film entitled Divine Mercy, the canonization of John Paul II. These projects, along with my decades-long membership in the choir of the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, have given me the opportunity to build relationships with many church leaders, clergy, and religious scholars. These experiences have instilled in me the highest respect for the Holy See, a deep appreciation for the responsibility of this post, and confidence that the United States-Vatican bilateral relationship is a force for good and one that cannot be ignored. As a lifelong Catholic, business owner, documentary filmmaker, author, and former public servant, I am profoundly humbled at the prospect of serving my country as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. If confirmed, I will work diligently to develop even stronger ties between the United States and the Holy See. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to be before you today and would be pleased to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Gingrich. Our next uh, nominee will be Mr. Sales. Mr. Sales. Thank you, Chairman Johnson. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Murphy, and thank you, members of the committee, for holding this hearing today. Um, it's an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, let me start by introducing my family. My wife, Margaret, along with our daughters, Anna and Kate. They're the ones with the coloring books and the stickers. Um, my parents, Alex and Marcia, are here. Uh, they came out from Ohio. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge my father-in-law and mother-in-law, uh, Charlie and Anna Treder, who are home in Boston today and couldn't be with us this morning. Uh, special word of thanks to Senator Portman, my fellow Buckeye, for his kind words of introduction. You can take the boy out of Ohio, but you can't take the Ohio out of the boy. Um, I also want to express my gratitude to President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for putting me forward for this important position. If I'm confirmed, I'll do everything in my power to earn and pay back the trust and confidence that they have shown in me and that the Senate will have shown in me. Uh, I came to the field of counterterrorism almost by happenstance. In 2001, I was a young lawyer at the Justice Department. Um, I'd been hired to work on administrative law issues. It, uh, it was the middle of August 2001. Three weeks later was 9-11. I still vividly recall the chilling rumors that flew that morning as we evacuated Maine Justice. I'm sure many of the people in this room recall those rumors as well. A car bomb at the State Department, fires on the National Mall, 
another hijacked plane heading for the capital. Now, some of those rumors turned out to be false alarms, but that was little consolation. The reality was bad enough. Suddenly, the Chevron doctrine no longer seemed so important. My job, and the job of everybody at the Justice Department, everybody in the administration, everybody in Congress, now shifted to one fundamental and overriding priority, preventing another assault on our homeland. 9-11 wasn't just an attack on our citizens and on our landmarks, it was an attack on our very way of life, our democracy, our commitment to the rule of law, our veneration of individual liberty. And so our top priority at the Justice Department was to equip our nation's cops and spies and soldiers with the tools they needed to confront this new menace. And just as importantly, to do so in a way uh, that maintained faith with our fundamental values as Americans, our basic national values. We couldn't allow our fundamental values to become a casualty of war. I took that commitment with me to Homeland Security a few years later. At DHS, I learned the importance of working with our allies around the world to confront the specter of terrorism. And I saw firsthand that our alliances are strong, not just because of our shared economic and military might, but because of our shared values. Let me also say a few words about the dedicated career professionals that I hope to join at the State Department. Before she became a lawyer, my wife earned a master's degree at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and many of her classmates went on to serve at the State Department. There's a reason why they call it the West Point of the Foreign Service. Getting to know them, I've developed a deep appreciation for their extensive knowledge, their commitment to the mission, and the sacrifices they've made for our country. It will be a privilege to serve alongside them if I'm confirmed. I started with my family, and I'd like to end there, too. I come from a long line of patriots. My father, Alex, was an ROTC cadet and a Navy officer in the tumultuous Vietnam era. During World War II, my grandfather, Clarence, served in the Army Corps of Engineers. He was stationed in England, which is where he met my grandmother, Agnes, an Army nurse. She actually outranked him, which is a fact that she never let him or anybody else forget. Um, my other grandfather, Chick, was an infantry captain. He saw action at Normandy, helped liberate France, and earned a bronze star for valor and a purple heart. It was a great honor for me to carry on their tradition of service at Justice and Homeland Security. And it will be a great honor, if I'm confirmed, to continue their legacy at state. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the committee. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Sales, and appreciate you introducing your, your family. I was remiss in not encouraging everybody to do so. So, uh, Mr. Glass, if you have members here, please, please introduce them, and then uh, look forward to your testimony. I will, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, it is with great humility and honor I sit before you today. I'm deeply grateful to President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for their trust and support in nominating me to be the ambassador to the Republic of Portugal. If confirmed, I'm committed to focusing all my energies to further the interest of the United States of America. If I could take a moment, I'd like to introduce my family, for without their support and love, I would not be here today. I'd like to acknowledge my wife, Mary, who's sitting here with me, who came out from Oregon. And I'd also like to acknowledge my three sons and their wives who are supporting me from afar. My oldest, Gordon, and his wife, Yao, currently live in Japan. He teaches English over there. My middle son, George, and his wife, Emily, are not here for the best of all reasons. They're due with their first child here in August, and that's actually our first grandchild. And our youngest, Andrew, who is uh, in the throes of his very first job just after graduating from college. I would also like to acknowledge my mother and stepfather, Mary and Jay O'Leary, 
and Mary's parents, Joe and Lori Ferguson. And lastly, I'd like to thank my father, who's here in spirit, and it's his courage and wisdom that brings me strength every day. I take seriously the rep, uh, representing the United States of America to the Republic of Portugal, which includes the Azores and Madeira. Portugal is amongst our oldest and most reliable allies. The history of our two nations has always been one of mutual respect and support. Portugal was the second nation to recognize America's independence, and our consulate in the Azores is the oldest continually operating consulate in the world. If confirmed, I also look forward to working with the outstanding personnel that currently serve our country in Mission Lisbon. Portugal's traditional geographic orientation to the Atlantic, the presence of 1.5 million Portuguese Americans living in the United States, and a strong pro-American sentiment across the political spectrum make the relationship between our two countries one of the three focal points of Portugal's foreign policy. This unique relationship has allowed us to turn to Portugal for political and material support in almost every peacekeeping mission the United States, NATO, and the United Nations has led since the end of the Cold War. If confirmed, it will be my job to lead Mission Portugal to further expand and enhance this political and economic relationship. More recently, the Republic of Portugal was hit especially hard by the 2008 global recession to the point where a financial rescue package was adopted in 2011. Mary and I were in Portugal for an extended trip in 2014 and saw for ourselves what the wage and spending cuts and tax increases were doing to the business environment. At that time, unemployment rates were over 15%, and they were double that for young adults. What we witnessed on that trip endeared us to the people of Portugal for life. Even with the economic backdrop, they were focused on the same values we hold dear here in America, God, family, and the belief that hard work will ultimately help one to succeed. These observations were not unfounded. Merely three years later, Portugal is in the midst of a remarkable economic recovery. The United States is now Portugal's number one trading partner outside the EU single market and the fifth largest trading partner overall. The most recent example of this resurgence in the bilateral trade occurred in 2016 when Portugal received the first ever shipment of liquefied natural gas from the United States to Europe. It is this newfound momentum in Portuguese business that makes it an exciting time to engage in commerce between our two countries. Lisbon is currently rated one of the hottest technology startup country, uh, cities in the EU, and given my former position as president of Pacific Crest Securities, I'm uniquely situated to help partner U.S. and Portuguese businesses to build upon the technology boom we're seeing today. The emergence of small startups, incubators, and boot camps looks a lot like San Francisco Bay Area did in the late 80s and early 90s, and if confirmed, I can't wait to join the 200 strong at Mission Lisbon uh, to help them in their endeavor to support the, and expand the business ties between the United States and Portugal. Lastly, if I may, I'd like to express my deepest sorrow uh, for the families and friends for the over 60 dead and hundreds who were injured in the latest uh, forest fire in Portugal. This has been a tragedy uh, of, of great proportions, and it's seldom that we see this kind of tragedy today. Coming from Oregon, where timber and timber-based products have been historically one of our largest industries, I know the pain that a forest fire can render and the burden that an entire people can feel. Mary and I continue to include the families of those who perished and the brave firefighters who battled mightily in our prayers. I hope somehow, someday, we can help prevent something like this from occurring again in the future. Distinguished Senators, once again, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for your time. Please have confidence that if confirmed, I will serve our great country, the United States of America, to the best of my abilities. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Glass. Final nominee would be Mr. Rich. Mr. Rich. 
Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you as the President's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. I am joined today by my family, my wife of over 22 years, Wendy Taylor Risch, who has supported me throughout my career and accompanied me on three overseas assignments. Wendy also worked for the Department of State as a spousal employee during two of my overseas tours. I'm also joined by my daughters, Annika Risch, a rising eighth grader, and Ilsa Risch, a rising sixth grader. My family is the center of my life, and instilling in our children a sense of kindness and empathy, as well as a respect for public service, is a priority for us. I am grateful to the President and Secretary Tillerson for the confidence and trust they have placed in me. It is, without a doubt, the greatest honor of my professional life to be nominated. And if confirmed, I will devote all of my skills, experience, and attention to performing my duties. My wife and I are both natives of central Pennsylvania, where we were born, raised, and educated. I practiced law there for eight years. My father, a veteran of the Korean War, worked for 30 years in a factory, now closed, which made automotive parts. My mother stayed home with me after my adoption. Being an adopted person, I have felt a special kinship with the abandoned, the orphaned and the forgotten, and this kinship has influenced me throughout my life. For example, over the past nine years, I have volunteered to serve on refugee processing trips for my agency, USCIS, in Thailand, Pakistan, Namibia, and Malaysia, where I work towards the resettlement to the United States of hundreds of victims of persecution and torture. As an attorney and civil servant, I will bring to the Bureau of Consular Affairs the same values and principles that have guided my career for the past 22 years, a commitment to the rule of law, to efficiency, to justice, and to transparency. My entire career has been focused on serving the public, especially Americans living and working abroad, and to the equal and fair application of the law. I began my government service as a Foreign Service officer. My consular tour is one of the most professionally enriching and rewarding experiences of my life. I am grateful and honored to have had the opportunity to work with the dedicated men and women of the State Department, especially in the days and weeks after the attacks of 9-11. In 2006, I returned to public service as a civil servant with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. It is at USCIS where I expanded my knowledge of immigration and nationality law. I rose through the ranks at USCIS, first as an appeals officer, then as a manager, and finally as chief of staff of the agency. In 2013, my wife and I made the decision to return to international service, and I have spent the past four years serving USCIS in our embassies in the Philippines and in South Korea. During those years, I had the pleasure of working side by side with consular sections throughout the world. I remain a dedicated civil servant to this day. If confirmed, it will be a privilege of a lifetime to lead the fine men and women of the Bureau of Consular Affairs. Consular officers are a first line of defense and our efforts to protect our country from those who will do us harm. And they are among the hardest working, most dedicated, and bravest employees in government service. They work in dangerous, uncomfortable places, all to serve the American people. This work is both complex and emotionally taxing, and I am immensely proud to say that I was once one of them, even for a short period of time. Since my days as a consular officer, so much has changed for the better at the State Department. 
a suite of interagency security review processes, continuous vetting of applicants using updated technology, biometrics capturing, a longer and better training program, a serious commitment to fraud detection, close cooperation with the Department of Homeland Security, and a culture of making national security a number one priority. This has strengthened state's shared mission to protect our homeland. Every visa decision the State Department makes thousands of times a day is a national security decision. If confirmed, I will strive to make sure our officers continue to have the training, resources, and leadership necessary to accurately adjudicate applications in accordance with the laws of the United States, while also facilitating legitimate international travel and protecting our national security. Should I be confirmed, I commit to working with members of this committee and to being responsive to your questions and concerns. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Rich. I want to thank all the nominees for your testimony. Uh, Ms. Glass, by the way, congratulations on your soon-to-be first grandchild. Uh, I've, I've got three now. They are everything they say, all the joy with a lot less responsibility. So, Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Thank You'll you. enjoy it. Uh, I want to thank all my colleagues for your strong attendance and in, in respect uh, to your time. What I'll do is I'll hold off my questions to the very end. And if uh, Senator Murphy, if you're, then S Senator Isaacson, if you're ready. Mr. Chairman, I didn't really come for a question. I came to pay tribute to Ms. Gingrich. Uh, we have something in common. She married Newt Gingrich. I replaced him in the House of Representatives. <laughs> he got the best end of that deal, I can tell you what for sure. But Callista is a lady of great talent. Uh, in fact, one of her great, great persuasive talents is to not only convince Newt to marry her, but to convert him to Catholicism, which will serve them well in the Holy See as well. So, Callista, we're mighty proud of you. We're very proud of Newt. I know you'll do a great job, and I just wanted to be here to cheer you on and tell you how proud we are of you. Thank you so much, Senator. With that, then, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of the nominees for your willingness to take on these positions and to serve this country. Um, I, I want to begin with you, Mrs. Gingrich, because um, you talked about the important role of Catholic charities and the Catholic mission around the world, and I certainly agree with that. I had the opportunity to visit a nursing home in northern New Hampshire on Friday that is um, operated by Catholic charities in the state, providing great care to people. Um, so I, I wanted to, to ask you, I, I know that Pope Francis has called on America and, and the rest of the Western world to uphold our tradition of moral leadership by welcoming vulnerable refugees fleeing violence and oppression into our country. And I just wonder how you would um, argue the United States position that is taken by this administration that has been less welcoming of refugees, and how will you work with um, the Holy See on um, on that um, very critical issue? The President and the Pope have grave concerns regarding the global refugee and migration crisis, and this is a priority for our President to deal with right now. Uh, we have a deep commitment in this country to work to forward peace and stability so people don't have to become refugees. Uh, the United States has been and will continue to be the largest provider of humanitarian aid in the world. We aren't disengaging. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with the Holy See to emphasize the impact that our foreign assistance will have and our partners around the world. Well, 
certainly we aren't disengaging, disengaging on foreign aid. I, I agree with that and think that we should continue to support that in every way we can, especially in those places where we're seeing famine as the result of man-made conditions. But this administration has reduced the ability of refugees to come to the country, particularly Syrian refugees who, um, who are fleeing violence and a horrible situation in their own country. Is this something that you think we can work with um, Pope Francis and the Holy See to try and ensure that we can help those refugees who are trying to get into the country? I think we can communicate our commitment to help those most in need, yes. Thank you. Um, Professor Sales, Secretary Tillerson has spoken repeatedly about the possibility of increased cooperation with Russia and Syria. We have a, a ceasefire that still seems to be holding in a very s small southern part of that country. Um, but time and again, Putin has demonstrated that he's interested in preserving the Assad regime. So do you believe that we share the same interests and objectives in Syria? And if not, how would you describe our objectives differently? Well, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I, th I think the answer is yes and no. I, I think we do have some shared objectives in Syria. Um, we face a common enemy in ISIS. Um, we have other interests that diverge, as you, as you well know, Senator. Um, as to what we can do with Russia or other members of the international community to achieve our objectives in, in Syria, our number one priority, I think, that, uh, as the administration has made plain, is to defeat ISIS. And what that means is taking their leaders off the battlefield and the foot soldiers off the battlefield, liberating the cities that they have seized, uh, defeating their ability to uh, recruit foreign fighters from around the world, particularly Europe, um, and drying up their sources of funding. The, the key question after uh, that goal is accomplished is what comes next? And I think uh, one important thing that has to happen is uh, a, st a political process involving all of the relevant stakeholders um, that can produce uh, stability um, such that uh, the people of Syria can chart a way forward. Um, that is something that cannot be accomplished entirely by military force. It's something that's going to require sustained diplomatic engagement. And Senator, if I'm confirmed to this position, um, that's going to be a priority of ours. Well, thank you. One of the one of the benefits that we have in fighting terrorism at home is engagement from the, uh, the communities that terrorists have often come from, in the Muslim community, for example. Making sure that there are good relations with people in the Muslim community here has been very helpful. How, how would you see our promoting those kinds of positive relationships? I couldn't agree with you more, Senator. Um, it, it's absolutely critical to maintain strong relationships with domestic populations um, as well as international populations um, because oftentimes these are the groups of people who uh, have the first insight into the fact that a problem may be taking place. And it's, it's critically important for us to have open lines of communication um, such that our, our friends are confident that they can tell us um, we think that something uh, amiss may be afoot without fear of stigmatization or any other sort of uh, negative repercussion. So I, I strongly agree with the, with, with the sentiment behind that question and um, look forward to maintaining those strong relationships, Senator. Well, thank you. I have other questions for the panelists, but my time is up, sadly. Senator Kane. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks and congratulations to all the witnesses for your nominations. Uh, to uh, Mr. Glass, the, the U.S.-Portugal relationship is a very important one. I do a lot of work in the Iberian uh, Peninsula in my work on this committee and applaud you for that nomination. And Mr. Risch, um, consular officials have very tough work. Uh, they really do. When I uh, travel for the Foreign Relations Committee, I always ask to meet without the ambassador with FSOs on their first or second tours, and they're almost always out of the consular section. And I basically say, congratulations, you have achieved a wonderful job working for the State Department. What will be the difference as to whether you make it a career or whether you leave after a few years? And that's usually all I have to say to engender about a two-hour conversation. And I really enjoy visiting with our consular officials, and your work will be very important. Uh, a question or comment for each, uh, Mr. Sales and, and Ms. Gingrich. Uh, Ms. Gingrich, the, I'm, I'm very happy that your answer to Senator Shaheen's questions about refugees. I was at the Vatican in February and had an opportunity to meet briefly with the Pope um, and then with other Vatican officials purely on the refugee issue. And in my conversation with the Pope, um, I thanked him for his leadership. Obviously, a key aspect of his speech to Congress in 2015 was about refugees. Um, he had given a speech the day before my visit in Rome focused on refugee issues. And he was pleading with the United States, please be a leader on these issues. You know, I was thanking him for his leadership, but he wasn't just going to accept a thank you. He wanted to put an ask on our shoulders. And, of, and as you know, there's so many issues in this important bilateral relationship. But I know that that will be an important one. I'm worried you are not the budget official, so I completely get this. You, you, you play the hand that you're dealt by a president's submitted budget and also the budget that Congress comes up with. But the cut to the Refugee Bureau proposed in the president's budget, um, the Refugee Bureau within State Department is 31 percent. And I think that sends a very loud message. Uh, rhetoric sends a message and budget send messages. Probably the two most significant messages you can send are with the rhetoric and with the budget. And, and we're sending a message. I hope it, that it is the will of this body to do some repair on that budget so the message that we send is not one that we're reducing America's traditional commitment to those issues. And I take you, uh, because of your background, uh, the comments you made to Senator Shaheen, that you, you'll do all you can to advance our longstanding policy of being a Statue of Liberty nation that welcomes people who are oppressed. I appreciate your commitment to that. Um, Mr. Sales, let me just ask you this. The, I'm on the Armed Services Committee as well, and last year we were able to get something done in the NDA that I thought was pretty, uh, uh, pretty good, um, and my colleagues agreed. We, we enabled, through the NDAA, uh, the DOD to transfer funds to state or USAID on the say-so of the SECDEF, for uh, countering violent extremism. Um, if the SECDEF felt like, well, I think state or USAID can do a better job at this than us. So in particular areas, it's really been more uh, in the expertise of state or USAID to, to do particular programs that could counter violent extremism. And sometimes the state and diplomatic touch uh, is better than the military touch. And so if the SECDEF agrees, there's now transfer authority. And I hope that that's something that you will look at. Um, but I, uh, I, I have noticed there has been some discussion of stripping away some CVE aspects of the administration's counterterrorism strategy. Will, to your knowledge, and I know you're, we're not presuming nominations, so you're not there yet, but will CVE remain a strong priority of the CT Bureau at the State Department? Yes, Senator. Um, if I'm confirmed, um, it will continue to be uh, a, a top priority for me and, and for the bureau that I would lead. Um, I think all counterterrorism 
has to involve a, a countering violent extremism component. Uh, terrorism is a uh, global problem that presents all sorts of different facets. Uh, and some of those facets require different kinds of solutions. Sometimes military solutions are required. Sometimes law enforcement solutions are required. But, but it's not just hard power that has to be deployed to counter uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other like-minded groups. We also have to use the softer tools in the national toolkit, um, uh, such as moral suasion, uh, such as engaging at the community level, um, such as providing off-ramps for those who might be tempted to take a path towards radicalization. So um, I, I, I'm grateful for this uh, capability that, that you and others have uh, uh, worked to build in, in the State Department. Um, and if I'm confirmed, I'll, I'll continue the good work that's been done, Senator. And Ms. Gingrich, if I could just go back, because you have a communications background, too, and of course CVE is an important priority of the Vatican as well. Could you talk a little bit about, and, and it's my last question, uh, how you see your role as ambassador to the Holy See and what you could do in the bilateral relationship with the Vatican to counter um, extremism? Well, it's very exciting to have the opportunity of confirmed to be working at an embassy, to lead an embassy that has a global influence and works on a global scale. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in working on projects to advance religious freedom, to uh, fight terrorism and violence, to combat human trafficking, uh, to fight diseases like HIV AIDS and Ebola, and to, to work on, uh, to seek peaceful solutions to crises around the world. So, so this is uh, an awesome opportunity if I am confirmed. Uh, there are many issues in which that we do agree. We have a very strong bilateral relationship with a shared agreement in many issues. Of course, there are always issues where diplomatic partners don't agree, but I look forward to working on those issues of our shared policy opportunities. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, Mr. Risch, in 2007, you appeared before the House Subcommittee on the Civil Service Census and Agency Organization of the Committee on Government Reform in a hearing titled Strengthening America Should the Issuing of Visas Be Viewed as a Diplomatic Tool or Security Measure, you said, and I quote, during my tenure as unit chief, I adjudicated approximately 25,000 visa applications. I resigned in May of 2002, even though I received top evaluation and a challenging onward assignment. While I longed to return to my private practice, I was also discouraged by the State Department's lack of dedication to the effective enforcement of the immigration laws of the United States. I took my job very seriously. The State Department did not, end quote. So, Mr. Rich, do you believe the State Department isn't committed to the rule of law and the national security of the United States? Um, thank you, Senator, for the question and for the opportunity to uh, address that testimony. I will point out that the testimony was in 2002, uh, not in 2007. So it was uh, 15 years ago that that testimony uh, took place. It was during the time when the uh, Department of Homeland Security was just being stood up. It was in the uh, you know, almost the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, I believe very, a lot has changed at the State Department in 15 years, and I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the future of, uh, of the way the Bureau of Consular Affairs will, will be doing its, uh, or fulfilling its function uh, with inter interagency cooperation, continuous vetting. So let uh, me, so I don't want my time to expire, but a lot of uh, candidates here. Do you believe the State Department is committed to the rule of law and the national security of the United States. Currently, Senator, I absolutely do. All right, now let me ask you, you went on the same hearing to say the fact, uh, this is a quote, the fact that even I was terrified by states' incompetence and apathy 
towards law enforcement proves just how far this problem has progressed. I urge the Congress to support the transfer of the visa issuing function from State's Bureau of Consular Affairs to the new Department of Homeland Security, a department that will be committed to the rule of law and the national security of the United States. Now, PRM's mission is to provide life-sustaining assistance to those who are persecuted, uprooted people by working through multilateral systems to build global partnerships, promote best practices in humanitarian response, ensure that humanitarian principles are thoroughly integrated into U.S. foreign and national security policy. For example, refugees and migration are important policy issues in our bilateral relations with countries like Turkey and Iraq. Uh, so do you believe that the Department of Homeland Security, which is notoriously bloated with a whole host of dysfunctional components, should be responsible still to have the visa, the, the very essence of the department you're being nominated to, to be transferred to the Department of Homeland Security? Well, 15 years ago, Senator, I, I stand behind my testimony. It was a completely different time, and there were a lot of talk about consolidating different things into the Department of Homeland Security. Currently, uh, I watched the, Secret the Deputy Secretary testify yesterday that it's currently not the intent of the uh, Department of State. I'm not asking you uh, what their intent is. I'm asking you your view. You're being well, nominated for this. My, my view is I would um, I follow the leadership of the Department of State if confirmed. Uh, but as of today, um, I intend to lead the Bureau of Consular Affairs as it is currently formed. I believe that I will be, if confirmed, a strong leader of the of all functions of the Consular Bureau, including the visa function. Mr. Sales, um, since 9-11, the United States has been developing and redeveloping strategies to counter terrorism and violent extremism. Our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan leave very little doubt that extremist ideologues and terrorists flourish, find the best recruits in areas of conflict, poverty, and where people have no hope for the future. The 2016 State Department and AID Joint Strategy on Countering Violent Extremism outlined five objectives. Uh, and in those objectives, they talk to those very issues that I just spoke about. So my question is, how do proposed cuts to the State Department and USAID programs that are the foreign assistance tools that advance the goals of combating terrorism and violent extremism actually uh, in line with our very own policy? Well, th thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I've spent some time in academic bureaucracies. I've spent some time in government bureaucracies. And in my experience, um, it's usually the case that they can afford to tighten the belt a bit. Now, as far as the overall State Department budget is concerned, Senator, um, you know, Congress has the power of the purse under the Constitution. Um, and so Congress will have to decide uh, the levels at which it, you know, it wishes to fund these activities. Yeah, what my I problem with these answers is that you all want to kick the ball to someone else, but your nominations are, in essence, going to be part of policy decision-making. You'll be in a room to be able to advocate at the State Department and interagency issues. And so simply saying that the Congress has the power of the purse, I'm fully aware of that. The question is, what is your advocacy at a given point in time? Are these the essential programs that are necessary, as, Sen as Secretary Mattis has said, that these are how we fight these ideologues. This is a guy who's a general. So uh, I, I would like to get better answers than that. And finally, if I may, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Glass, uh, we have a lot of Portuguese Americans uh, in New Jersey and from the Azores, an extraordinary uh, group of citizens have done extraordinary things in communities. Have you visited Portugal? I have. Uh, do you speak Portuguese? I, uh, at this time, no. I've had some Spanish and uh, working on Portuguese and will certainly uh, 
utilize the experts that are in the embassy to help us learn the language as we go? I asked that question because in the past these uh, questions have been asked when I was the chairman of uh, nominees, and for some it was disqualifying. For me it's not, but I, I just wanted to know. Thank you very much. Mr. Glass, why don't you take this opportunity right now to provide some comfort to uh, uh, Senator Menendez. Talk about your experience in your trip to Portugal that you uh, conveyed to me in my office. Well, uh, the trip that uh, Mary and I took to Portugal was three years ago. We were on a pilgrimage to Fatima, and uh, when we got there, uh, it truly transformed our lives. It transformed the way we look at each other. It transformed the way we look at our religion. And uh, as we traveled throughout the uh, country, we realized the hospitality of the people there was extraordinary. And this is at a time that uh, three years ago, they were under a very severe recession. Uh, they had an austerity program that was enacted. And so uh, there was a lot of unemployment, uh, yet that didn't stop everybody from welcoming us there. And so we knew at the time when we left that we frankly left a big piece of our hearts there and that we wanted to come back. And we just certainly had no idea we'd be possibly coming back if, if confirmed in this role. Uh, but uh, Portugal is very important to us, and we look forward to uh, serving the United States in Portugal. Senator Udall. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Chairman Johnson. Um, New Mexico, my uh, home state, has one of the oldest Catholic traditions in the country, and it's been over 400 years since the Catholic Church was first established in the state of New Mexico, uh, which was, obviously wasn't a state at that time. Uh, those traditions still run very strong in the state, and like uh, Pope Francis, many New Mexicans have a strong reverence for St. Francis de Assisi. In fact, the uh, Catholic missionary efforts in New Mexico were started uh, by the order named for him, the Franciscans. The full name of my hometown of Santa Fe, the oldest capital city in the country, is also named for St. Francis. Its full name is La La Via Real de la Santa Fe de San Francisco de Assisi, the royal town of the holy faith of St. Francis of Assisi. The traditions of St. Francis run strong in New Mexico. The Pope honors this saint by taking his name and working in his tradition. Writing in his encyclical, Laudato Si, or Praise Be to You, and it was subtitled On care for our common home, Pope Francis stated, I believe that St. Francis is the example par excellence of care for the vulnerable and of an integral ecology lived out joyfully and authentically. He is the patron saint of all who study and work in the area of ecology, and he is also much loved by non-Christians. He was particularly concerned for God's creation and for the poor and for the outcast. Those are the words of the Pope. The Pope gifted his encyclical on climate change to President Trump when he visited the Pope at the Vatican. Pope Francis in Laudato Si and many other occasions has called on Catholics and people from every faith to work together to address climate change and protect the environment. In New Mexico, my constituents are at the front lines of global warming and we're already beginning to see the impacts of extreme weather events. Ms. Gingrich, would you, could you share your thoughts on Laudato Si' and how you would dialogue with the Holy See regarding climate change and what Pope Francis calls a dialogue about how we shape the future of the planet? 
Well, the Pope and the President share a great concern about our environment. President Trump wants to maintain that we have clean air and clean water and that the United States remains an environmental leader. As President Trump said, we will disengage and pull out of the Paris Agreement and either re-enter the Paris Agreement or an entirely new agreement, one that is fair to Americans. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the Holy See as the United States pursues a balanced approach to climate policy, one that promotes American jobs, American prosperity, and energy security. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I really believe the essence and core of uh, diplomacy is listening and having an open mind, and I hope that you will uh, go over there with that approach and, and, uh, and listen, to the, listen to the Pope. Um, the Holy Sees played an important role along with the United States to engage Cuba uh, and to improve relations with our island neighbor. Uh, Cardinal Ortega in Cuba and Pope Francis have used the dialogue to help resolve differences between the United States and Cuba. Uh, what are your views on this dialogue and would you be willing to work with the Vatican to increase ties between the United States and the Cuban people? Well, we certainly appreciate the Holy See's concern for a better relationship between the United States and Cuba. And uh, if confirmed, I look forward to working with the Holy See to advance religious freedom and human dignity and human rights in Cuba. Yeah. Do, do any of the other panelists have a, uh, a uh, view on the Pope's encyclical on climate change? I take that as no, 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 all three. Okay, thank you very much. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for uh, being here. Um, I, um, I wanted to follow up on Senator Menendez's line of questioning, especially to you, Mr. Rich, and to you, Mr. Sales, because it's an important point. Um, you are going to be asked for your opinion. In fact, you are being nominated to your positions because of your policy expertise in both of these areas. So he is right. It simply is not enough to suggest you are going to follow orders. It's important for the nominating committee and for the Senate to know what advice you are going to be giving. So, um, Mr. Rich, let me just drill down to ask you to answer a question that you haven't answered yet, which is, if you are asked for your opinion as to whether states should retain function over visa responsibilities or it should be shifted to Department of Homeland Security, what will your advice be? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, you know, this has been a subject of debate for, for quite some time. Uh, my understanding is currently the debate is framed around government efficiency. Um, when I've seen this proposal bubble up, usually it's been in the context of these efficiency initiatives and brainstorming sessions. Um, I cannot speak to whether or not it would bring a certain efficiency to move that function from one department to the other, and I don't intend to advocate for that. I'm simply not in a position to make that efficiency call around, around that function. My concern in the past in criticizing the State Department was around a lack of respect for consular work, uh, around national security concerns, and around the rule of law. I believe those issues have been addressed so I do not intend to advocate for that change based on any concern around the way the State Department does its job. Okay. I think that's fairly clear. It's important for us to understand whether you're being nominated to this position to effectively end the functionality, and I hear you to be saying that that is not your intent. 
Uh, it is not my intent, Senator. Uh, I do not intend, if confirmed, to lead a diminished Bureau of Consular Affairs. I intend to lead a bureau that I believe will probably be uh, gaining responsibility and importance in protecting our country. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, Mr. Sales, I, I uh, appreciate your answer around efficiency. Um, I don't think any of us disagree that every bureaucracy can get more efficient, but that's not what's happening to the Department of State. This is a strategic focus on a greatly diminished capacity, and specifically some of the biggest cuts happen under your portfolio. Uh, so there is um, a 10% cut in funding for the Counterterrorism Bureau. Um, but then more damaging, there is a 30% cut to Nader funding proposed in the president's budget, and that's foreign aid uh, for counterterrorism activities at state. Uh, that budget request moves a $1.1 billion fund down to a $680 million fund. Um, so um, do you think that you can effectively carry out on the set of responsibilities you are given uh, with a 30% cut to Nader funding, which seems to go beyond just those uh, savings that can be captured by efficiency? Sure. Uh, th thanks for the question, Senator. Um, I'll answer it as best I can from my vantage point as an outsider, somebody who has not yet gotten a great deal of visibility on the, the internal deliberations on these very important questions. Um, so with that caveat, what, what I can tell you is um, if I ever thought – and we talked about this yesterday in your office, Senator. Um, so I, I, can, I can assure you that if I ever thought that I didn't have the resources I needed to do the job to which I had been confirmed, um, I would have no hesitation whatsoever about raising that concern with my superiors and advocating for what I deem to be necessary. Um, I appreciate that answer. I think if that's – your sincere answer, you will be in the position of advocating very vigorously, very early. The hiring freeze that at first applied to the entirety of the federal government now applies to only one agency, and that is the State Department. And you will all feel that uh, because you will not be able to hire individuals that you need in order to perform the tasks at your departments and your embassies. Extraordinary measures have been taken to prevent lateral transfers within the Department of State. Thus, you will see certain functionalities hollowed out because the traditional ways in which state move people back and forth are no longer available. There is something extraordinary happening right now, and, and many of us can't derive the motivation for it, um, uh, but you are all going to feel the brunt of it, and I hope that all of your answer would be the same as Mr. Sales, that if you felt that you didn't have the resources, uh, that notwithstanding the decisions that have been made by the White House, you would argue for more resources. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. If we have a second round, I might have one or two sure. more. Well, before I turn to Senator uh, Merkley, as long as we're on the subject, you know, Ms. Sales, talk about you know, your experience with DHS and the coordination that's going to be incredibly important between Department of State and DHS. And I think that's a legitimate uh, discussion point in terms of where we're are these activities best carried out? Well, thank you, Senator. Um, in my experience at, at DHS, uh, one of the most important um, areas of international engagement that bears real fruit counter in, in terms of counterterrorism is information sharing. Um, it's really critically important for our international allies to tell us if they know about a, a known or suspected terrorist who might be trying to travel to the United States, to, to tell us if they know about uh, somebody who has 
uh, a criminal history uh, as long as your forearm trying to travel to the United States. Um, we've made some great strides towards ensuring more effective sharing of that kind of information since 9-11. Um, here in the United States, we've pioneered information sharing. A after 9-11, one of the refrains that we constantly heard was the need to tear down the wall. Well, there's not just walls in our domestic law. There are also walls in our international relations that impede the effective sharing of information. So if I were confirmed uh, to this position, that would be, I think, a, a top priority of mine, working with our allies around the globe to talk about ways to share that information uh, to enhance our counterterrorism effectiveness on both sides of the, of the transaction. Okay, I just want to give you that opportunity because I think when you take a look at this massive federal government with, uh, you know, the, the results of the 9-11 Commission talking about these stovepipes, I mean, it's a legitimate management uh, discussion uh, and, quite honestly, an uh, initiative to take a look at where best should these functions reside. Uh, so I, I don't see any problem whatsoever in having this administration do a top-to-bottom review and take a look at that. And, again, what, where it all shakes out, there's a second branch of government here, and Congress will certainly uh, engage in that. Certainly under my other committee, the Chairman of Homeland Security Government Affairs will be discussing these things. But this is what effective management does. You're always doing postmortems. You're always taking a look at what is the most effective way to spend the money to uh, get the best result. So with that, to Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it is a pleasure to join my colleague, Senator Wyden in welcoming our fellow Oregonian, George Edward Glass, nominated to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Portugal. Mr. Glass has probably been introduced in terms of the details, that he is a native Oregonian, proud graduate of the University of Oregon, but I want to emphasize those things again, that he certainly has some tremendous Oregon passions, like the love of Oregon's outdoor spaces and Ducks football, hopefully a good season ahead. And I'm grateful that he's willing to put those loves on hold to be overseas to serve our country. A warm welcome to Mr. Glass's wife, Mary. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Ambassadorial posts are necessarily family affairs, so I appreciate the fact that Mrs. Glass is willing to join her husband in traveling and representing the United States in Portugal. Portugal has been a very important ally, and we've seen a very intriguing and successful economic story unfold there. And I think nurturing this relationship will be of great service. And I thank you, Mr. Glass, for being willing to undertake that mission. Thank you, Senator Markley, and thank you for serving the great state of Oregon and the United States Senate. We really you're, appreciate it. You're welcome. And Ms. Gingrich, I wanted to follow up on the the question that was asked in regard to the Pope's encyclical. Uh, he gave it as a, a president to, as a present to President Trump when he was there. Uh, has President Trump had a chance to, to read or digest that encyclical? I am not aware whether or not he's read the encyclical. In your preparation to serve, have you had a chance to uh, take a look at it? I have looked at some of it, sir. Are there pieces of it that particularly resonate for you? Well, I think we're all called to be stewards of the land. You know, as I said earlier, President Trump cares for our environment. 
He wants to sustain our clean air and our clean water, and, and he wants the United States to be an environmental leader. We aren't backing off of that, but we are looking to you know, increase the security of this country, to pro promote jobs for Americans, and to have a better prosperity. So the focus is slightly different, but we do want to remain an environmental leader. The, the Pope has indicated that he feels that there's a huge urgency to acting quickly to address the basic factors driving climate disruption. Do you share that sense of urgency? Well, I do believe climate change exists and that some of it is due to human behavior. But I think as the president pursues a better deal for Americans, uh, we will indeed remain an environmental leader in the world. I appreciate your confidence in that. I must say I must have missed a few of the president's statements that, that have given you that faith. Um, I wish it were so. I'm not persuaded, but perhaps we'll see more unfold in, in, that, in that regard. What other two or three things do you see as your, 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 the key to your particular responsibilities should you hold this post? If confirmed, I'm looking forward to working with the Holy See to combat human trafficking. This is a horrific offense that threatens our global security. Uh, the president has made it a priority to combat human trafficking. Uh, Chairman Corker and other members of this committee have made it a priority as well. The Holy See is a valued partner in this regard, and the Pope has uh, lent international focus to this issue. So if confirmed, I look forward to working with the White House, the Congress, and the Holy See to combat human trafficking around the world. My appreciation to all of you for putting yourselves forward in what can be a complex, difficult, and trying nomination process. And with that, I'll, I'll yield back the rest of my time. Thanks, Senator Merkley. Well, kind of looking at my list of questions, uh, when I did some follow-ups to uh, some of the other senators' questions, I, I pretty well covered it uh, and questioned everybody except for Mrs. Gingrich, my uh, fellow Wisconsinite. So l let me just give you an opportunity. Uh, you know, George Santiana, and I'm probably mispronouncing that like I did Basilica earlier, senior moment, uh, made the famous statement that uh, those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. I know both you and your hus husband are serious students of history. And in particular, your study of Pope John Paul II, uh, your, your documentary, Nine Days to Change the World, um, from my standpoint, that really puts you in a very good position to understand exactly the power of leadership. And I believe as I'm sure you do too, I think America's been a phenomenal force for good in the world. I think the Catholic Church has been a phenomenal force for good in the world. In my own community, uh, one of the things I got involved in, got me involved in public service was trying to save the Catholic school system there as a, as a private sector alternative. So can you just talk a little bit about your study that produced those documentaries and, and how that leadership, you know, what, what you learned in terms of leadership and, and how America and the Holy See can work together to, to really help change the world? Our movie, Nine Days That Changed the World, highlights this exact topic. Uh, in 1979, Pope John Paul II traveled to Poland on a historic pilgrimage to see the Polish people, and it was against the wishes of the communist government. And millions of Poles came out to greet the Holy Father. And it was really seen as the beginning of the end of communism in Poland and Eastern Europe. And Pope John Paul II worked very closely with President Reagan 
and uh, 10 years later you have the first free elections in Poland. So it, it's so important that we, we reach out to places like the Holy See to, to forward good in this world and, and to make it a, a better place to advance our peace and our freedom and our human dignity. Well, I think an ambassador that understands that, that history and understands the power of that leadership is uh, perfectly suited for this position. So, uh, Senator Murphy, do you have any further questions? Yeah, just uh, additional uh, two questions. One for Mr. Risch. Uh, we've been talking about uh, this administration's policy towards refugees. Um, multiple courts uh, have held that the policy is illegal, um, in part because it appears discriminatory, given that it is targeted only to refugees of certain countries when we you know, have security vulnerabilities that still exist in many other refugee programs. Can you just, in many other immigration programs, um, I would argue visa waiver at the top of that list. Um, can you speak to whether you believe that the um, only means of protecting this country um, is an outright ban on refugees or whether you believe that at some point, uh, there is going to be an amendment of this policy by the administration, maybe advocated by you once you're in place, uh, to provide amendments, uh, additional screening within the program to allow it to restart. Do you need the ban, or can you make changes to the program uh, that satisfy the concerns that many people have about it? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, as for refugee policy, I'll, I'll point out that that really isn't something that would fall underneath the Bureau of Consular Affairs. Right. Uh, it would really be under uh, PRM uh, and their relationship with, well, my agency now, USCIS. Uh, as, for, as for vetting, um, at least in the refugee context, I can speak as someone who has done refugee interviews uh, over, over many years, uh, that the interviews are very detailed um, and go into great detail about their persecution story and their biographic data and uh, every one of them is spoken to by uh, an American officer. So as for whether or not refugees are screened, uh, they, they most certainly are uh, in the sense that they're, they're spoken to at great length about their, about their qualifications. Um, as for the current situation with uh, travel pause uh, from certain countries and the way that is playing out, I, mean, I, I certainly support any kind of uh, steps that are necessary to review our national security posture and take a look at uh, whether or not um, our vetting processes are, are sufficient to protect the United States. Um, and, and Mr. Sales, let me ask you one specific question, and then uh, um, I'll defer to written questions for the remainder. Um, we talked a little bit in my office about some of the current conflicts in the Middle East today, the most recent intelligent estimate provided to Congress uh, shows that AQAP, which has always been the most lethal uh, and most uh, homeland-oriented uh, arm of al-Qaeda, is growing stronger and stronger inside Yemen because of the civil war. Um, under the Obama administration, there was a robust political process that Secretary Kerry was leading uh, to try to end that violence and to try to end the benefit that was being provided to AQAP. Um, I've talked to all of the players inside that conflict, and none of them see that political process happening uh, today. It is, for, it is by and large dead, in part because the Saudis feel empowered um, by the green light they interpret as uh, to have been given uh, through the president's visit there. Um, can you just speak uh, to the importance 
of a political process inside Yemen and the danger of allowing for this civil war to persist, uh, given this, the growth of AQAP uh, during that time? Well, Senator, I, I couldn't agree more with the premise of your question that uh, a purely military solution uh, is never going to achieve the counterterrorism gains we need. What, what's needed is, is a stable environment, because as you put out, um, uh, Terrorists thrive in political vacuums. That, you know, that's the lesson of Afghanistan. That's the lesson of Libya. That's the lesson of Iraq. Um, and so diplomatic engagement, I think, is absolutely essential to ensure that we have uh, a durable and stable status quo in, in Yemen, to bring the fighting to an end um, and empower local players to gain control over territory and borders. That's the only way you're going to get AQAP uh, under control, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Murphy. Again, I want to thank all the witnesses for your, for your testimony. Um, congratulations again on your nominations. I want to congratulate the President. Really, I think the, the selection here, uh, your new, unique backgrounds and capabilities, I think, suit you well for the positions to which you've been nominated. Uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. I want to thank your families. Uh, you'll probably be seeing less, less of your loved ones. These are serious responsibilities. But uh, again, th thank you very much. Um, with that, I've got to find the, the secret words here. Do we have questions for the record? Okay. Now, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, July 20th. This hearing is adjourned.